What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science Science and and superstition. superstition. It lies between the pit of humankind's fears and the summit of our knowledge. No, your ears don't deceive you. You're not imagining things. This is that podcast. You've entered the The fifth dimension. dimension. Greetings, travelers. I'm your host, Michael Rothman, editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound and a constant contributor to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, a horror franchise podcast. Today, we're going to be kicking off the fifth dimension by going back to the very beginning of Rod Serling's legendary show. We're going to be discussing the show's place in pop culture, its humble origins, the phrase The Twilight Zone, its themes, its style, its format, its reboots. But before we do that, let's go around and introduce our co-hosts. Greetings, travelers. I'm Matt Mellis, Editorial Director of Consequence of Sound. I'm Samantha Kuykendall, a social media specialist for CPN. I'm here because of my love for pop culture as I sleep with a gizmo from Joe Dante's Gremlins. Oh, his you have to specify Joe Dante because you have a cinematic crush on Joe masterpiece, Dante. Gremlins. Mm-hmm. And let's just be real. You have like four or five Gremlins that's in the bed. So let's, okay. All right, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> I love this series and I'm super excited to talk about it with you guys and its place in pop culture. I'm Eleanor Edwards. And as a fan of space spookiness, quandaries and great writing, I've been trying to solve the Twilight Zone for ages. Okay, first off, what is your relationship to the Twilight Zone and what struck you most about it? When I was little, I used to sneak downstairs when my dad would watch it um, and hide behind the couch so I could watch it with him, even though I was definitely too young to have been watching it. Uh, I did the same thing with the X-Files, too. And he would usually find me like curled up down there like after the show had ended. He also uh, very lovingly referred to me as Anthony Fremont, the kid from... It's a good life. He would constantly, if I spilt something or something, he'd be like, it's okay, it's okay, to kind of derail the situation. It's it's a good thing you spilled that. (laughs) Exactly. So he um, constantly calls me Anthony Fremont and uh, might not be a great thing, but I'll take it, you know? So the Twilight Zone means a lot to me in that I grew up wanting to watch it. Yeah, I'm kind of in a similar boat. My father was uh, a teacher of science fiction throughout the late 60s, 70s, and he just always got me into science fiction, whether it was getting having me read Robert Heinlein uh, at way too early of an age or, you know, watching The Twilight Zone. And for me, it was it's something that I align with a lot of holidays, mostly because of the sci fi channel, because they used to have all the marathons that would be going on for New Year's Day and for, you know, an an array of different I think they have one for the Fourth of July also, but um, mostly on New Year's Day. And that was just something that like my father and I would always 
watch and you know just over the years just informed me in a variety of ways and it informed a number of shows that i you know love and appreciate down the road as well um i think it's one of those rootsy shows that you can kind of touch on anything that you love in any kind of era of pop culture and it's going to probably have roots to the twilight zone whether it's you know the x-files or twin peaks or the, the outer limits exactly well definitely the outer limits mm. for sure the twilight zone has always been a part of my life and while i definitely did have some hesitations uh with what's going to happen with jordan peele's new incarnation you know i i definitely feel a little bit more positive about that than say the the past reboots of the time but very excited about this for me, like a lot of people, Twilight Zone was something I watched periodically whenever I'd catch it. It was part of my cultural awareness. But I only really started getting into it a couple years back as an adult when my mom was dying of ovarian cancer. And I was staying out with her out in the middle of nowhere in the mountains where it was very dark. There weren't people around for miles and it was very isolated. While she was going through this massive transitional process from life to death, we were there watching an episode or two per day just, you know passing the time. And it was a really pivotal time. So watching the show then, when it's exploring such huge questions like what's our place in the universe, what makes a life valuable, even when it seems insignificant, should we be afraid of the unknown, those kinds of questions. And then I also got the viewing experience with my mom who could put the episodes in the cultural context that she experienced them as someone who lived through the 60s. So she was able to tell me the gravity of the racial episodes or using certain actors and why it was important and what it meant to her as someone who experienced it directly the first time. And add to that the spookiness of us being all isolated and alone in the countryside. <laughs> Altogether made for a really incredible experience. But on top of that, for me as a non-religious person, Twilight Zone offers the same kind of parables and morals that people find in their in their holy texts and provokes the same thoughts that philosophers wrestle with. So it's all that, but in a really fun 25-minute package. I totally agree. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> And you say 25-minute package, and I, I think that's kind of what first struck me about it, um, this idea of anthologies. And even today, like short story anthologies, anything in an anthology package, it interests me. Um, growing up, I loved, like, Are You Afraid of the Dark and Tales from the Crypt. And I learned how to watch those shows from The Twilight Zone, which was on the Sci-Fi Channel. And before that would be Alfred Hitchcock Presents, probably. Mm, yeah. um, so I think what I loved about it was, here's your chance with, like, these constraints, right? You can't do too much plot. You can only have so many characters. Only so much could happen. It's 22 minutes with commercials. And I'm going to try to blow you away with a really cool idea or to make you think or scare you or whatever that would be. So I just kind of grew up with that idea of passing stories and jokes around and kind of uh, show off. And definitely a lot of these episodes, even at a young age, you know, definitely blow you away and I think stick with you. No, I I hundred percent agree, man. I think that's that's something that really I never really actually thought about it, but yeah, I mean, like, are you afraid of the dark? Is absolutely like it's anthology. Yeah, I mean, Each it's episode is different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely tied to this, and it it does feel as if you know, I don't I I don't know what today's generation American has for that story. Yeah, I guess American I mean, horror. I don't yeah. think even though it's season. Likewise, as opposed to episodic, uh, we still get something different each season. Yeah. So I don't think that anthology would be as big as it is now without the Twilight Zone. But it's interesting because I, I just feel like almost like the anthology episode seems so I, I don't know if it's antiquated or not or if it's just t it goes in like different cycles or or whatnot but it just seems as if like so we had are you afraid of the dark we also like throughout the aughts i mean obviously twilight zone came back in the 80s and also came back in the aughts only for like a year with forrest whitaker and it didn't work out too well but it's interesting to think that like today the new twilight zone might be the only one where like for episode to episode is something totally different you're forgetting black mirror black yeah. mirror definitely but still, like with Black Mirror, it's all technology based, you know, like we don't really get that kind of fantastical fun that the Twilight Zone brings, you know what I mean? Like, whereas Black Mirror is just all like futuristic and what can technology do to us? Whereas like, I feel like the Twilight Zone, like you have episodes where death comes, you know, and there's so much that can be done narratively that the Twilight Zone does that Black Mirror, I don't think does. Well, it's the Black Mirror definitely has been like, has been a parallel to what people consider is like the modern Twilight Zone. It but is. I, But I mean, even before that, though, like, so for example, like throughout the 2000s or the aughts, like, 
you know, people that are going to be old enough to actually appreciate the Twilight Zone right now, like, what did they grow up with? Nothing. I'm 25 years old. I can tell you right now that we had nothing like this. And that's what's so fun about it. And it's, it's introducing a totally new generation to the series. Like, do you think Netflix and Hulu, who now have the streaming rights to the Twilight Zone, they wouldn't be as popular as if, like, if we didn't have the access to yeah. it, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think there would be this resurgence with Jordan Peele if the younger generation didn't have access. Like, I don't have to go out to a used DVD place to pick up the Twilight Zone episodes. I can go on Netflix or I can go on Hulu and watch them. So it's accessible to us now. And and I wonder if the accessibility is a big reason why it's had a resurgence. Because if you look at, the, just even just, and granted, this is probably going to be rude to any sort of younger generations, but just because it is black and white and it comes from the 50s, I bet you there's a reluctance to actually pick up the DVD and yes. buy it. As opposed to when you see it on Hulu and you go, oh, I've actually heard a lot of things about the Twilight Zone. Or maybe it's the fact that, I mean, this is just really trying to give a lot of credit to Jordan Peele. But maybe it's the idea that Jordan Peele is like hip is like this this total cultural icon right now that has given even more relevancy to the Twilight Zone to a younger generation. I think that that's true. Um, But I mean, even look at the X-Files. Like, I don't think we would have had this X-Files revival or whatever you want to call it if the x-files wasn't available for streaming yeah we wouldn't have had the access to it like the x-files came out the year i was born as much as i love that series i wouldn't have been able to watch it as an adult if it wasn't like as accessible as it is Mm. to a younger generation no that's a good point i mean and honestly it feels as if like at this point netflix does dictate what is actually going to become popular i mean like look at last year with the office like all of a sudden everyone started talking about the office only because it was at the forefront of what was in everyone's cues for netflix i definitely would attribute netflix to Jordan Peele being able to have gotten like the okay or the green light to have like had the option to do this again. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also the state of the world that we're in right now as well. It has its finger on the pulse of cultural Exactly. We're at know. a point right now where the world some- needs something like mm-hmm. this. When you need something like, to your point, a little bit more, it has a wider scope than say like Black Mirror, which is, you, you like, as you pointed out, is more specific to actual just technology, you know. Maybe at this point now we can actually have things that talk about politics in ways that just aren't intrinsically tied to computers or, you know, whatever is the new modern advancement in, you know, digital technology. Exactly. I'm over the technology thing. Like we've seen how it can affect us. I I, I want some spooky demons and I want some uh, walking dolls. I want something that's going to make me walk away with like goosebumps. I want Bill Shatner sweating. That's what I want. (laughs) Actually, I would say that um, technology does play a really important role because you were saying that it's hard for younger people to approach a black and white series. I think it's similar that in the early aughts, there was such an emphasis on showing what special effects could do. Mm -hmm. So it kind of defined what you were dealing with in terms of monsters. And now we're over that and technology is more subtle. Yeah, we're back to practical effects. Yeah, exactly. So you can write more clever stuff and not have to wow with awesome technology. And I think if something's done well, people are always going to go back and they're going to find it. And let's face it, Jordan Peele right now is on a hot streak. I mean, if there's anyone who can make this work right now, I would trust him to do that. Make it work for an audience that didn't grow up on that format. I think they'll dig it if he does it well. Well, and you can tell he loves the subject matter as well. Like Mike and I were watching old episodes of Key and Peele, and we watched this episode where it's the continental breakfast bit, but he's on an airline, like in, mm-hmm. on a flight, and they allude to the tear at 20,000 feet monster while he's on the flight. And that was like on a Key and Peele sketch on Comedy Central. So like, you can tell like going back to even his like comedy roots, like he still like really admires the show and like it meant something to him well i think like honestly if you just look at the medium of what the twilight zone is it's exactly what jordan peele has been doing from day one i mean he's using pop entertainment to tell broader discussions of inclusion or cultural sensitivity or racial commentary i mean there's just so many things that you can kind of funnel through the twilight zone to to talk mm-hmm. about criticism and that's where it goes back to its very beginning like that's sure. where that's what was almost the genesis of this show it is. like rod serling he was a playwright and he wrote like a lot of touchy subjects for people and a lot of his producers would basically water down his scripts because it was like, we don't want to offend anyone. And he like was so excited to go into sci-fi. It was like the next step for him because he could talk about racism. He could, because he was putting it in a futuristic kind of setting where like people weren't mm-hmm. as offended in that. Like it wasn't based off of anything. It was anything. the Trojan horse to exactly. be able to talk about And subjects, so yeah. he took that as kind of like a, 
I can actually now write about what I want to write about because I'm not offending anyone anymore. Um, because when you're putting it in that futuristic setting, no one's like relating it to whatever is going on right then and there. He was like stoked basically to do sci-fi, even though the vast majority of critics, they thought he was a step down. Like someone in an interview in 1959 basically said to him, uh, for the foreseeable future, you've given up on writing anything important for television. And the irony of that fucking statement is yeah. that <laughs> he made something that now is so like ingrained into pop culture history that I'm a 25 year old woman and I knew that Twilight Zone music before I had even mm -hmm. like seen the series you know mm -hmm. or like you recognize his voice before having even watched an episode and true, that's true. that's how you know you've made your mark in pop culture history. I do think that that probably is the litmus test whenever you know something without having ever seen it. Like, again, you know that music whether you ever saw an episode or not. Exactly. If someone says, we've entered the Twilight Zone, you know what you that know means. What whether yeah. you've, you know. Yeah. That brings up a question that I have, which is, why does it still work? You know, like, I'm, I am also very excited mm. about the Jordan Peele one. And if anybody can do it, he can. But at this point, there are episodes that you don't even have to have seen it to get the joke. And it's written into everything from Futurama and Family Guy yeah, into sure. Key and Peele skits. And we've seen the same kind of plot twists happen in a million shows since then and in a million movies. And, you know, we're in the M. Night Shyamalan era. So why is it still entertaining when it feels like we've explored every plot twist possible? <laughs> Can they still surprise us? Well, I actually, like, I went um, and looked up kind of like where our country was each time a new variation of this uh -huh, series uh -huh. has happened. And obviously, like, in 85, when they did the series again, we were, like, in the middle of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan was president. There was an AIDS epidemic. Like, I feel like the show comes forward when a society is in, like, a state of turmoil. And, like, in 1983, when the, like, Dan Aykroyd movie came out, we were all, like, super scared of the world ending. There was this huge movie called The Day After that, like, aired on TV that scared, like, children and adults alike that everyone was talking about because we were so afraid of nuclear war. And then, of course, when Forrest Whitaker came and did the 2001 version of it i mean 2002, 2002 but, so yeah, just like yeah. right afterwards exactly right after 9 11 right. you know and never forget never for, <laughs> never yep great <laughs> and obviously our country is being torn apart and so i think we sometimes need this to make us feel well, better well, that, and that's been a big discussion right now with just even horror in general i mean like Absolutely. this past weekend jordan peele um noam we just were talking about mm -hmm. him he you know he he's <laughs> his film us just broke the record for being the highest grossing original horror film for its like opening weekend it's just it landed that mm -hmm. that record you know with it in, in 2017 and in halloween in 2018 you just see that people want to be scared because it's a it's a great escapism. You know, it's it's a way to just have some sort of relation to what's going on in your own world without having to be in your own that world. That was my question for you. So, is the appeal, you know, no pun intended, is the appeal that <laughs> it's the roller coaster? It's where you can get that safe sort of um, thrill, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and sort of engage fear because. I mean, even if we look back at the original series, I mean, we were coming out of World War, War II. II. We're talking about the threat. Again, we're just getting into the Cuban Missile Crisis a couple of years later. Yeah. I mean, they have like those old PSAs for students and they had a turtle. The turtle was like the mascot because the turtle had a shell he could duck into. And they were showing, you know, like kids ducking under desks as if, you know, that was somehow, you know, ducking and covering was going to, you know, save their lives if there was some sort of nuclear attack or anything so i mean you're absolutely right the series keeps coming back in times of either great fear or right now political turmoil and fear and again is that it is it just is it a comfortable way to embrace fear in a way that just again is it escapism well i think you also have to consider the fact that the twilight zone is an incredibly popular ip like we all just discussed how everyone knows what the twilight zone is regardless of whether or not you've actually seen the show and in an age where ip is literally the skeleton key in hollywood right now it only makes sense that if someone wants to come in and sell these you know it's almost like this weird inverse of what happened with rod sterling in the 50s where you have someone like jordan peele who says hey look i have a bunch of creatives who want to tell these great stories mm -hmm. about uh society and culture and change and i need to find a place to do it 
for Rod Serling, he had to kind of go and subvert the sort of narratives that were going on by welding all this in science fiction and, sure. you know, yeah. and broader horror and whatnot. With Jordan Peele, it's almost like this this really interesting capitalization on IP that's intellectual property. In an era where IP is just kind of dusted off and you just throw it out there and you go, okay, well, let's just hope that we get some box office receipts. He's actually using IP to tell original stories, which mm. is kind of interesting. It's like this weird sort of... As opposed to like reboots and like, you know, yeah. sequels and franchises. It's this thing that's incredibly lucrative for someone like CBS that could say, guess what? Not only do we have the hottest guy in Hollywood that's going to be leading this, but we're also dusting off one of our most celebrated names in television history while also there's no guarantee that we're getting these sort of remakes and reboots yes he's going to be redoing nightmare at Thirty Thousand feet which was already be done in the joe dante movie but he's going to be doing something totally different with it and most of the other episodes are actually going to be original stories so yeah. it's kind of this like brilliant way of using ip and i think that's one of the reasons why it's also out there because we we need something familiar to be kind of drawn in now especially at a time when there's so much content and there's so much like there's so much competition so i i think it's actually a genius way to put it out there and i don't think it's too different than the circumstances that Rod Serling was operating on back in the 50s in which, you know, people worried about, about offending. I mean, we're kind of in the same era right now, too. So mm, History yeah. repeats itself. Yeah. See, I was wondering if maybe this time we can actually solve the problems uh, yeah. you know, instead yeah. of going through the cycle because now we don't have to worry about offending racists. I think there's certain types of stories that we get over and over again and they sort of never fail to please. Audiences are so sophisticated nowadays. I mean, Elmer raises such a great question. You know, how does it still work? And uh, I mean, I won't play spoiler at all, but when you get into the new Peel series, which we've seen screeners for, you do get familiar stories, but he does a certain twist on them. Or he finds ways to repackage stories you've had a thousand times or concepts or themes you've had a thousand times in a way you haven't quite seen before. I do think what's kind of fun, and we do it when we go back and we watch the old Twilight Zone, you could, even if you didn't see the episode before, right, you can kind of figure out, you, you kind of get into a rhythm of figuring out what's going on. Oh, you know, they're heading to Earth, they're not on Earth now, or you find, you know, you figure out little things, you kind of get into a rhythm of actually being a problem solver. But that's only because mm -hmm. we've seen, like, people who have our directors now take so much from the original series. Absolutely, so yeah. if we were watching that original series in 1959, I don't think there's any fucking way that these people would have been guessing the ending. No. You know, they could in some cases absolutely. I talked to my father about yeah. this a lot, and I talked to him about a lot of things, including my twenty thousand dollars in debt and um, <laughs> the way that I think that uh, we're all going to die from a multitude oh, of different cheery things. Rothman. Uh, but is. especially, we sometimes we do talk about the Twilight Zone, and when we do talk about the Twilight Zone, I ask him like, "God, Dad, like, what was it like when you were watching like, you know, The Howling Man?" Or what was it like when you got to see that first episode? And nobody knew what was going to go on. I mean, nobody had any idea what the show was. And all of a sudden, this creepy fucking series just pops up. You know, what was it like when you saw Where Is Everybody? This first episode, mm -hmm. in which is so dark and so, like, it's so cynical and, and, and so terrifying. Or, you know... And he tells me, he's just like, it was groundbreaking. Nobody, sure. nobody missed an episode. You came home and you watched that show because it was something that you had never seen before. And even as someone that, that like him, yeah. he's born in 47. So he was only like 12, 12? years old when this, this series came on. And he had grown up reading like, you know, certain comic books here yeah, and yeah. certain like serials, short stories and stuff like that with sci-fi. But this was just, this is avant-garde, cutting edge cream of the crop in this genre and in, in just in entertainment alone like this was this was a shattering well there was nothing on right? tv like that like rod sterling got shut down by a lot of different networks for this television series and even when cbs bought it for like 10 grand they shelved it for a really long time and in the book that i was reading um that had just a bunch of facts in it it was uh, showing like a program listing from 1959 what he was like basically competing with as far as like subject matter and my favorite one was Superman's secret identity threatened by a gangster's dog. So like that's what was being broadcast at this time. Not where is everybody where it's a man abandoned and you have to figure out like if at the end he's obviously like in a test subject for the army to see how long isolation will fuck someone up. It's just it's crazy to think that like 
1959, this came on the the television and just probably like it would just blow well, minds. Right. You also have to think that this isn't a time when we were like mistrusting our government either. You know, that didn't happen until like after Kennedy. The 60s is really where all that starts changing. Like we were, you know, we had blind faith. We had blind faith in our government, which is at the time, you know, when this premiered, Dwight D. Eisenhower is running the country yeah. with Nixon as vice president. I remember Oof. until Nixon, we're going through an area of great prosperity following Absolutely. the war. Every house has the new car, the new dishwasher, the it's new, the I 50s, mean, yeah. exactly. This is Donna Reed, Pearls. But that was making some people uncomfortable. You can see it in literature from the time. And I think that some people would have been able to predict the endings of the episodes. And they're the, the kids who were reading sci-fi. The, the sci-fi geeks would have been like, oh, I saw that coming. But sure. the show was accessible enough that everybody could enjoy it. And it gives you lots of different levels to decipher. So you're not just trying to get to what's really going on here. You're trying to get to and what was the message behind that? And mm-hmm. was this person a good person? Did they deserve this? Definitely. I mean, yeah, no. I think that's I mean, I think it's a great point that you say that, yeah, the sci-fi geeks were like, oh, finally something for us. But it was something for everyone. I, I mean, I'm just experienced of the last few months finding this again on Netflix and you know, my parents walking in every now and then are visiting and, you know, they're not like me. They don't like the stuff I do. My dad you know, doesn't watch anything that's not sports, you know, but we all sit down there and we're just able to come at it from our different worlds, our different tastes, our different experiences and get really engaged and raptured in a smart piece of television writing that sort of makes you think that sort of freaks you out to put you on your edge. It really is an experience, I think, tapped into anyone well uh to quote uh an episode people uh, are quote. like all over and honestly i think what one of the things that's great about this series is that you had like a writer like richard matheson whose groundbreaking you know trademark was the ability to create organic style characters that felt as if it could happen in your neighborhood you know until then you were having these sci-fi stories that oh, felt so far yeah. out of reach and so fantastical that you do. You were transported, and they're great, and they're great stories. But you, ha- when you have somebody like Richard Matheson, he brings it down to a local level. You know, you go look at something like the monsters that do a Maple exactly. Street. Like that is yeah. an, right. that is a timeless. You know, it's a timeless episode, and people will cite it all the time. Not because of just its commentary, but because of how relatable it is. We still have suburbs. We still have these right, houses right. that are lined next to each other. And also, you got to even think about like we still alienate people too. You yeah, know? exactly. I mean, <laughs> most of the characters are most of the characters are again like bank tellers, right? Mm-hmm. Everyday business spender, just you know what? Librarian, a little a little fed up with uh, how things are going at the office, and they need an escape from it. I mean, it's just it is very very relatable. It's absolutely. it's just so economical in that way. I love the number of traveling salesmen in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, you had what uh, you could be. Uh, a traveling salesman is at least uh, one of like three existing jobs at that time. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> or or you're sure. like an executive that, that has like just this faceless board to deal with. Or be, yeah. Businessman, traveling salesman, or... Librarian. Librarian. Bookkeeper. They did feature women who had actual jobs, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it also took sci-fi to like where it wasn't just like the geeky kid, you know, like it's like kind of in the area we're in right now where like I grew up like being made fun of for a lot of the things that I liked. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. we're in an age where it's like the cool thing to be a little dorky. And I think that's what that did then was like women and men alike at whatever age could enjoy this genre that was like like predominantly kind of male for one thing and like kind of the dorky introverted kid liked you know well it, we also have to really you know reckon with there weren't that many shows on <laughs> it's know? true yeah. like it wasn't like I we had like 18 Net- billion i mean it's a water cooler show because there were what three <laughs> or four <laughs> options yeah exactly so i mean it really it was an event because it was literally the only event that you could have and also television was so young at that age that it was such a novel thing to actually have in the home anyway you know there's that whole joke in, in back to the future and it's just like Oh, you kidding me? We have like two TVs or whatever. It's like you have two TVs and you know these like they're you know <laughs> and western. It's like and, and reruns. It's like what the hell's a rerun? And like all this yeah. stuff is so novel. And that was like 1955. I love how I'm using Back to the Future as like like an actual historical fact. Like you're veering off to the spinoff podcast. Yeah, yeah. Got it. back to the pod. <laughs> oh um, God, no, but <laughs> can only imagine. I guess I should have known that it was sci-fi because it did have women who had actual jobs. 
a lot of the women in some of the episodes weren't just like housewives, you know, like even in Mirror Image, which came about because a lot of people were saying that Serling wasn't casting female leads. So mm-hmm. he was like, fuck you guys. I'll show you that I can put a female lead and make this just as good and notable. And I think Mirror Image is the perfect example of that. It's the actress from Psycho. She's... Vera Miles. Yeah, she's yeah. the sister. Yeah. Amazing in it. And as I'm sure a lot of people know at this point, inspired Jordan Peele's Us. And is one of my favorite episodes, but she's not just like this housewife character, you know, she's this woman on her own at a bus stop and has to like go through this situation where she finds her doppelganger. But he changed what writing was like narratively for women too. like it wasn't just can I make dinner for you at the end of the day type of character that we were used to? Oh, and all, and, all, and for all races too. I mean, like oh, but God, early yeah. on in the first season alone, that's true. Yeah. The big tall wish is, is one of the most groundbreaking episodes of television because he cast all black leads without having to even touch upon race, which was, you know, something that still plagues black creators today. Exactly. And I, that episode is just unbelievable it's to go beautiful. back yeah, to. So and it, even the way it di- they, they direct it, because one of the problems they had was that, you know, they only had so many extras to, to be involved and you're doing these epic boxing matches. And so they were able to cut really closely. But it looks like avant-garde, the television that would even be avant-garde today. It's not hyperbole to say that The Twilight Zone is arguably the greatest television show of all time. And I think most people and critics, (laughs) historians would all agree with that, which is why I'm so excited that we're going to be able to go through, you know, all these older episodes. And I'm also excited that this is just going back into the the cultural lexicon because these are important things with themes that still resonate today because you had some of the sharpest forward thinking writers writing them, which isn't always the case today. A lot of the times it's just based on who's you know favorites available and stuff like too. that who's available yeah. like <laughs> this this was yeah. they, they set such a precedent on like the top quality stuff i mean for christ's sakes bernhard herman who's one of the greatest composers of all time does Jerry the theme Goldsmith, the list goes on i mean it's it's unreal before we travel onward into deeper dimensional drifts it would serve us well to let you know that our continued existence rests entirely in your hands if you find the fifth dimension to be a welcome sojourn through your favorite anthology of the unknown please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Apple Podcasts is the largest podcasting platform there is, so taking the time to share your thoughts there means a lot. On the other hand, Podchaser is an incredible resource for podcast discovery, including host profiles. So you can follow our exploits across other series, rate and review specific episodes, create lists, and more. Do us the tremendous favor of leaving a review, and we just might read it here on the show. We should also tell you that if you're a fan of thrills, chills, and paranormal experiences, you should check out some of our other series here on Consequence Podcast Network. The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, where we dissect horror franchises one film at a time, beginning with Halloween and now the Nightmare on Elm Street series. If you haven't yet, be sure to add The Fifth Dimension, a Twilight Zone podcast, to your preferred podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. And keep the discussion going with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Fifth Dimension Podcast. All right, for this next section, we're going to be breaking down the themes that are are intrinsic to the Twilight Zone and actually right in the intro itself. We're going to be discussing light and shadow. What do we mean when we say light and shadow? What does light and shadow mean in the Twilight Zone? For me, Light and Shadow, I guess, like, what I took from it um, was that some endings kind of have, like, lighter resolution, whereas, like, some have those darker kind of endings. I think some examples of, like, some of the happier endings, although not, like, fairy tale endings, obviously, but make you feel a little bit better are, like, what you need. Um, It's from season one, episode 12. It's where that guy can he's a psychic basically mm-hmm. and he gives you what you need like because based on his like psychic abilities and the like this dickhead character realizes what he can do and um it's one of like the few episodes where like the asshole kind of gets his own you know where like in the end the the psychic kind of bamboozles him and it's this like happy ending because you you see this character like get the shitty end of the stick which never happens in any episode so like that one for me stood out as far as like one of the more endings that like made me feel better at the end but some of them obviously have a lot of dark endings I think one that stands out to a lot of people is time enough at last obviously like at first you think maybe it's gonna be happy and you're like stoked for him to 
be able to just read for the rest of his life, but then his glasses break. So I think for me, it was like some episodes left me feeling like, oh, like nice, like that, that was great. And then some episodes had me feeling like more in the shadow of like, that was awful. And I am ter- like, I'm scared and sad for this character. So that's kind of what I took away from that, from Rod Serling's introduction, such is, you know? Such is life that there's. Yeah, exactly. That's life, you know? And, that, and that's kind of, I'm, I'm going to piggyback on that um, just because that's kind of where I see it also is I, I look at every episode as being this kind of deconstruction of the soul for every character. Um, and, so, you know, granted, a lot of them have ensembles like, you know, the masks and, and whatnot. And I'm not talking about Jim Carrey's mask, but somebody either way. But I, I think every episode, for the most part, is just this you're kind of seeing the charting influence or you know the influence of someone's soul. And I think to Sammy's point, I think that whether or not you start with a rotten person or a good person, you're either going to see them shift into the shadow or out of the shadow. And that's kind of how I've always taken those you know core tenets. And and, in a, and you see that in a bunch of episodes. You know, I mean, like the Big Tall Wish, like that's a, an episode solely about whether or not a character wants to believe in his own hubris or he can believe in all, all he has to do is believe in magic and he could have the, the you know all his dreams ahead of him but he can't either believe in magic or he can't believe the idea that this stuff would happen without his own sort of you know like him doing it himself and mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of that that sort of ego there's hubris there's just so many like themes that they weld onto that that deal with you know the trajectory of the soul so yeah i mean for me that's 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 kind of why i always see it yeah i think we look at these kind of the same and <laughs> get the same thing out of these comedy or tragedy episodes when i'm watching the twilight zone a lot of times i'm wondering can you win in the twilight zone you know mm-hmm. do you ever get out all right do you do all right yeah. um and i think that Winning in the Twilight Zone is directly related to love, and you can only win if you make the right decision, if you do the right thing. Because there are some episodes where you just, you can't win, there's no winning, like Elegy is one where you're just kind of stuck and and you can't win. But on the ones where you do have some choice and you can affect things, like Dust is an example, where the crowd just has to forgive a guy Mm -hmm. who's about to be hanged. If they forgive him then everybody gets out okay. And the day isn't a total disaster. Even though there's sadness, there's also the ability to forgive and you you have that uplifting idea that there is some kind of good in the world. Like my favorite episode is Willoughby. And what I love about that one is that, you know, everyone has that inescapable notion of having a task that's too tall to endure. That's too tall to actually, you know, it's hurdles too tall to jump. And what I think is so timeless about that episode is that it wrestles with the feeling of defeat, that this person would rather have the escape, which, as we come to, you know, spoiler alert, uh, Willoughby uh, comes to represent suicide um, (laughs) (laughs) because the character jumps from the train and dies. But that in his own was this sense of defeat. The the odds were too insurmountable (laughs) against him. And that for him, it's this weird gray area that so many people have a hard time wrestling with today even of mm-hmm. is that a happy ending i kind of see it almost as a happy ending because he's able to go to this sort of place that does represent a, a an escape a way for him to unplug from his own problems and clearly he wasn't going to be able to solve them in his own world but at the same time you could see it as something else i think a more straightforward less gray area version of that would be one for the angels mm-hmm. I, I have that one down too eleanor That's yeah. a good one. yeah <laughs> Where um, sometimes even if you don't survive the episode, you're still winning it <laughs> yeah. by by doing the right thing, by making the right choice. Even if you have to sacrifice yourself to yourself. the unknown, it can be the right choice, the payoff. And that's what's great about this show, that just like great literature, it's willing to be this place where moral and ethical dilemmas you know, are safeguarded, where people have to make those choices. Going back to Sammy's idea, there's happy endings, but they're not Hollywood endings. Mm -mm. They're well-earned. And it also, like Mike was saying with the Willoughby episode, it makes you ask that question, you know, what is a happy ending? It makes you have to sit down and rethink these very sort of cookie-cutter definitions of happy ending, sad ending, doing the right thing. And I mean, I think all the best art does that. Yeah, that you're not necessarily submitting to tragedy. You're accepting the truth that you're faced with. Which is a big part of some of the earlier episodes, for sure. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about, you know, some of the light and some of the ones, if you can actually win, I think that the idea of what win is, is 
when the characters actually can come to terms with whatever lesson is actually being presented to them for sure. You know, like for example, like in walking distance, which is an early, early episode, mm-hmm. you know, you have the character of Martin who just is at a gas station. It's like as it's close to his hometown. And he goes into where he grew up and he's actually obviously sent back in time, almost like, almost kind of like a back to the future situation. And by the end, it's like almost this sort of like coming to terms, coming to Jesus moment for him where he realizes like, no, you know what? That was that time. And now this is my time and I have to go and kind of move on from it. So he doesn't necessarily win per se, but the Twilight Zone puts him where he needs to be. And I think that's where the show actually wins over. The reason why this is such a widespread demographic winning show is because it has those moments. Because if every episode ended, like say, you know, Nightmare at uh, 20,000 Feet or The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, it would be, I don't. I just don't think that this would have been such a, a, a far reaching show because it would have been far too nihilistic, which is one of the reasons why I would argue for Black Mirror. Some people can't handle that show, you mm. know? So. I, th- I mean, I think it comes back to who can impose some sort of agency on the world, who can do the right thing. And I mean, I think that's who we see. Like, I think, and his name's Ed Wynn, is the actor who ends up winning and won for the Angels. <laughs> uh, of course, we know he's going to, uh, as he finds out, he made it into heaven, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> he finds that out. But of course, you know, I mean, there's a dark side of that, but there were no guarantees there was a heaven. I guess like we talk about these outcomes, it's, it's so true to life for me. It's like my car didn't get towed yesterday, but I got a ticket on it. You know, uh, I was going to get one of the two things. Maybe I didn't get the very worst thing. You know, I didn't get the very best thing. I got something somewhere in the middle and I have to kind of come to terms with that. Well, the endings are also human, you know, like exactly. they're not like these fantastical endings that make you think like, that could never happen to me. The endings feel like it's it's the condition of being a human being. They're they're normal in that sometimes stuff is shitty, you know, yeah. and that's what being a person is. And so that's what I love about the episodes is that the episodes sometimes just end with like not like necessarily a, an unhappy ending, but a realistic ending. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I relate to so much to it is that like sometimes by the end of an episode, I'll like think of that character and be like, God, I, I probably would have done the same thing. And that's like another reason why I think it's such a staple to us as a as a society is because the endings never feel far fetched, even though we're dealing with far fetched subject matter. We just appreciate seeing that because it's like, oh, I would do that. You know, you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of the character because the ending doesn't feel like, oh, the princess gets the prince, you know, type exactly. of endings. They're they're very human. And, and that's, you know, that's why I love it. Every episode, you know, they're written by a whole bunch of different people. So unlike a religious text, or I guess exactly like a religious text, you don't get a perfectly simple, organized rule book. You get a lot of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But one of the mm-hmm. things that I think is constant is that they believe that the viewer is somebody who's just an average person who's trying to do their best and be a good person. And so most of the protagonists are just average people dealing with ridiculously huge conflicts that you will face in life. Like Hitchhiker is a good example. You are going to be faced with death and you're going to have to figure out how to cope with it. And the significance of your life, no matter how ordinary you are, comes from how you deal with it. And One for the Angels is a really good example of that because the sale that he's got to make is not about the thing that he's selling. It's about being the best version of a human. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and a lot of the human ideas that are even from some more far-fetched situations, you know, like, for example, The Lonely, in which, I mean, it's like it takes place in 2046. So technically, it's the future still even for us. <laughs> but it was really the future for them, which where they thought that, you know, we would be able to send out prisoners nine million miles away oh, on, yeah. you know, remote planets and whatnot. But at the very end of that, it just comes down to the feelings of loneliness, which is something that anyone can relate to. We all grapple with you that. Know? And, and, that's I, and a, it, that's a big, big surling theme, loneliness, for sure. Oh, totally. <laughs> just You figured out a few episodes in. <laughs> but Matt, you actually have an interesting uh, literal reasoning for Light and Shadow that is actually good. I think is kind of yeah, important I mean, to note. Well, I mean, uh, working back through this series for the first time and again, like probably haven't really sat down with the series in a couple of decades. and. It really is the masterclass of how they use, you know, ideas of dark and light or light and shadow. We kind of talked about how black and white television and the constraints can be a turnoff. I just don't want to, you know, just like, you know, maybe when you're growing up, uh, 
Uh, I don't want to read that. It doesn't have pictures, right? You know? <laughs> um, but I hope people take on the challenge because um, what they're able to do storytelling-wise, and again, you know, Serling had, had almost no money invested in this. You know, think time enough for... Uh, the one where time Bur- enough at last. Yeah, time yeah. enough at last. So Burgess Meredith, right? He's in this, you know, wasteland after a nuclear strike, right? And two feet back, you can see it's clearly a painted, you know, backdrop. I mean, there was, I mean, this was done on a shoestring budget. So they had to figure out ways to do things. And I mean, the way they, the way they use light to um, convey a certain emotion or the way they, um, they do a great use of it. And the, um, traveling salesman goes back in time. Everything darkens around him and the carousel behind him of his boyhood, you know, grows dark. And it's, it's that idea, you know, that, that emotion that he can't go back to that, that, that time's done. I mean, just so beautifully done. Or, um, we know that one of the characters is now on death's, you know, schedule. Because this dark shadow is cast over her. Well, I have the beholder is certainly of that because the entire episode is just in is is all tied to shadow. I and mean, you know you because ha- you, you can't see the patient's face. You can't you know she's wrapped in shrouds, mm-hmm. and you have to you can't see the the the, Doctor. the doctors and yeah. the nurses' faces either. So you know, granted, it's it's funny watching this show in like high definition now because you know most shows that do have that transfer to high definition, they kind of have some setbacks because of it, but. That episode is the only one that kind of has one just because you could kind of see the lines of the the actors' yeah. faces and whatnot. But even then, it's still just a marvel of the the black and white aesthetic because you're able to do so much with it. And what I like, and they do so much with it, like the Purple Testament, where we're in the Philippines and a soldier, he can tell who's going to come back from a mission and who's not because their face glows. So in this case, Light App actually represents, you know, death and add since He could tell who's not going to make it back from the mission. So it's just so many creative ways they use, I thought, dark and they use light. A lot of times they'll use dark to let you know you're entering into the Twilight mm-hmm. Zone. This is where something strange is taking place. So they use those little visual cues. And then something we're going to talk about, especially when we get back to the old episodes, is just how different camera angles and things they do with uh darkness and fogginess how they're able to just make you know like a roller coaster ride horrific it's so ahead of its time and it's necessities the mother of invention what they do with you know the storytelling because of just it only had so many things to work with i mean it's it's truly breathtaking and it's still like it hits on such an emotional level or like a creepy level or uh, a hopeful level i mean it can touch all those emotional bases Again, without, you know, CGI, without great effects, you know, with, again, like that, you know, paper backdrop two feet away. And uh, we wonder why the character won't take a step that way. Well, it's because there's nowhere to step to, you know. Yeah. So I think it's it's a master class in the technical side of things with dark and light, but also just storytelling and what dark and light can do. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always mean what you think it will, too. Yeah. You know, sometimes a light is the entranceway, right? Well, sometimes here it's like darkness is the entranceway into something. Sometimes dark means death. Sometimes light means death. Matt, watch out. I think you almost broke that mirror right behind you. <laughs> not another Twilight Zone mirror. Let me just tell you, I'm a little superstitious. So I just want to make sure. <laughs> I'm not superstitious. I'm a little stitious. Oh, you're Thank a little you. stitious. Thank you, Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Scott Kikadel over there. <laughs> That's a big part of, I think, how you watch these episodes. I mean, are you that skeptic who says, you know, this is just a great escape? Or are you that person who says, this shit's happened to me, you know, or I could see this stuff going down. This stuff happens every day. Is it believable? So I think you're saying, are you a believer of science or are you a believer of superstition? A scully or a molder? That's mm. a good way of putting it. See, to me, to me, believing makes it real, so it's too dangerous for me to believe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think of myself as a superstitious person, but that's purely because I don't allow myself to. Mm. But we all think it, you so, know, maybe. So it's a coping mechanism? Yeah. <laughs> okay. For my overwhelming superstition. No, I am definitely a superstitious person. Like, to the point when I was younger, I would, like, make sure I wasn't stepping on cracks to break my mother's back. Um, and Mike and I in our apartment, we have this chair that I so lovingly refer to as haunted chair uh, because <laughs> I swear, no, even if I haven't set something in the chair, if I've lost something, I almost always find it in the chair. Um, so it's like almost like it engulfs whatever I lose in the house. You've got a really low-level haunting there. I just I'm I I believe in aliens. I believe in ghosts. So I a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes leave me with that kind of prickly goosebump feeling because I'm like, 
I could see that happening to me or I could see this happening to someone. And I think that's why horror in general just always resonates with me because I usually believe in it. Well, and I think that's, you know, when, you know, Sterling says science and superstition and the title credits, I think that's pretty much the summation of the show and just why this is such a successful invention. It's because it crosses over into those two lines. I'm always going to be obsessed with science, even if I was awful in it in school. Um, I was pretty good in biology, but chemistry, I had to kind of bribe my teacher to actually get me a passing grade. So science I've always respected, but you know, didn't really uh, understand as a scientist myself. However, with superstition, I've just always been intrigued by, because I guess it's just part of my upbringing. I, mean, I remember when my parents were fighting and uh, one of the mirrors was broken. And despite them being at the, the craziest level of just yelling back and forth, I remember hearing my dad going, God damn it, seven years bad luck. <laughs> and so I think it's like always been in my family. And like even my mother has been the same way. Like she always like would pull me away from ladders. So stuff, all, a lot of the more superstitious elements of the Twilight Zone is something that's always hit me because I could see the obsessive nature to it. You know, like one of my favorite episodes also is The Nick of Time with uh, our boy uh, Bill Shatner, <laughs> um, who's in no way, shape or form a murderer. And I, um, I, you know, what I love about that episode is the feeling of, yeah, these all these answers that this machine at this little diner is giving him are easily, you know, they're so like easily manipulative. You know, like if it could have been saying anything, and he probably vague. they're very vague enough that you could just apply it to any sort of situation and measure. And granted, it, it, it tends to hit upon some sort of specific notes, but those like little specific things are things that I know if I was in that situation, I would just be sitting there waiting also. <laughs> oh, me too. You know, and I'd be ordering the pie and then also, you know, the soda and another soda. I'd, I'd be get like, my second iced coffee just like the wife did. I'd be like, Sammy, don't you want another sandwich? You're not, you're not done with your new one, but I'll, I'll get you another sandwich. We don't need to leave here. You uh, can't leave past 3 p.m. But but that that episode is so it's so emblematic of like the the series as a whole in that you understand why these characters are getting into the situations that they get in. Some superstition is just great advice. Oh, definitely. My mom used to tell me that I couldn't walk over paraplegic signs as like a kid, like the, you know, the, like, like the parking lot things. And so I am 25 years old and I will not walk past one. You mean like a handicap sign? Yeah, like a a handicap sign. It's like my mom just like ingrained in my brain that it was bad luck. Mm. So like if I'm walking with someone, I will pull them away from it to not walk on it. And I think that kind of fear ties back into just kind of traditional tenets of, of, of folklore. You know, this is why things were passed by. I mean, for Christ's sake, like literally, actually, what I'm about to bring up, that's why the Bible was created. You know, like the Bible was created because there was just no morals and no laws that were actually out there. And so the people created this fictitious God. Yeah. And I do mean fictitious God because there is no God in this world. Um, that, there he goes again. Um, that we, well, there's you know, ghosts and aliens. <laughs> and there are ghosts and aliens. And yes, I believe in all of that stuff. The truth but, is out there. <laughs> It's just not in heaven, according but to the, the, no. that very Bible. Like all of it is just that sort of like they all prey upon superstitions and the morals that are tied to those superstitions that you can kind of ha- have that sort of sense of guilt, that sense of dread, and, and that, that's what the show capitalizes. Or on. that you can do something to ward something off. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what superstition is. Is like if I don't step on this crack, my mom's back's gonna be fine. You know, or if I don't walk under this ladder, I'll be okay. It's it's like a Almost like this, like sending bad juju out away from yourself. And and, and I'm going to go into a little history for just a second, because when the Twilight Zone actually premiered, it is such a crazy transformative time in culture in general. I mean, we're talking about at the point when the Twilight Zone premiered, Hawaii and Alaska were just added to America. That's crazy. You know, we actually hadn't even set like we hadn't even like the idea of being on the moon was still just like a dream. The Guggenheim Museum, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, like had just opened. Miles Davis is a kind of blue, which is, you know, revolutionary for just music as a whole. And not to mention jazz had just hit. So you're having this like kind of not maybe as crazy as the 60s were in terms of like the explosive nature of this actually seeing it on the streets. But there's a wild raging culture that's going on right now, and especially in fringe culture. And I think that the, the Twilight Zone was able to kind of take that fringe culture and kind of hit upon the mainstream level with that. And I think that one of the reasons why the show worked well also is because it took those kind of superstitious ideas and molded it with the science and the culture that was happening at that moment because Mm -hmm. people were scared of what was happening with the change whether it was science culture or you know even technology so which i guess ties into science a question that comes up frequently is is technology our friend or is it scary which is the question that's been answered by black mirror as it's scary (laughs) 
But I think the Twilight Zone ultimately doesn't think that technology is scary. The scary thing is when a human pushes the button that launches the atomic bomb. And a good example of this on a smaller scale is the lateness of the hour, which is about robots, as Rod Serling calls them, (laughs) Um, where you go through the episode thinking that the robots are the scary thing because you get this creepy smile from one of them when she's supposed to be showing signs of pain. And um, they start acting up and you start feeling like, oh, the humans aren't in control anymore. And it's a little bit scary. But then ultimately, at the end, you realize that the human is in control and, and the human creates the scary thing and decides when it has life and when it doesn't. And uh, that kind of control is is really ultimately much creepier than <laughs> the robots themselves. Yeah, I think I think it's the implication. I think with robots or robots, it's always <laughs> the implications of what they were wired to do by its creators. It's mm-hmm. almost like a Frankenstein sort of thing, you know, where like the real monster is the persons behind the, the ones that actually put it together. You know, you know, it used to be the foregone conclusion, like there aren't aliens out there, you know, now people say, well, there's so many galaxies out there. There must be, you know, and I think it's sort of like it used to be the foregone conclusion. Artificial intelligence or was becoming is going to end us. It'll be the end of sort of humanity. Uh, We're not going to we're going to become obsolete. But I mean, I've heard a lot of sort of people in the industry recently kind of come out and do talks on how no matter how much that technology advances, there's just going to be, you know, even if they're talking like economics, there's going to be jobs they can never do. There's going to be things, you know, human-wise they can never fulfill. Maybe they won't take over and obliterate us and that's how we die. See, I've heard the the other way too. I've I've heard that. But then I've also heard people make the argument that computers are just going to start learning how to think, you know, much better than we do and ultimately replace us all. Which is something that we could be prepared for if we started thinking about it now. You know, we could prepare and and make a life for ourselves where that works for us. But we won't because we're caught up in petty things like, is a Green New Deal bad? Or Yeah, exactly. exactly. Influencers and and whatnot. The only solace I can take is when I remember watching movies, this was always going to happen like 2000, 2036. So we're pretty much there already. So if we just make it a few more years, we'll be beyond the danger point, you know? Whenever, you know, they took over and uh, killed us. You know, in uh, 1984, uh, a soldier named uh, Kyle Reese (laughs) was was sent back uh, in time and and it was impregnated a woman named Sarah Connor. And in the future, there will be a a great man named John Connor that's going to lead us against the the machine. We're still up on the air whether we're going to do a Twilight Zone podcast or a Terminator podcast. (laughs) Oh, this is we we actually just if you want to go and vote on this and let us know which way to go. We're we're up in the air. No, sorry. I'm I'm taking over. This is uh, Skynet pod. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, robots and T-800s right here. I disagree here because I heard that in the future, hospitals and the police force are going to be privatized and they're going to be run by like robot cops, you know? Oh, interesting. Are you you taking us to Detroit? (laughs) Um, Old Detroit. Uh, Old Detroit. I love (laughs) Detroit. Where does Wally fit in here? That's my question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wally, Wally is like the aftermath of all this. I was but. gonna say, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna be taken over and obliterated, uh, could we do it at least on an acute way, mm. in a Pixar-friendly way? I'd like to imagine it's that... easier to digest for me. You know, that's how I cope with things. You know, what's cuter than Peter Weller? I don't have to be superstitious to cope. I just, I just, <laughs> it has to be cute. My demise has to be cute. Mm. Well, are you are you scared of uh, any uh, science? I mean, obviously, they deal with the uh, nuclear holocaust kind of a lot, sure. and. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately the thing that you're supposed to be scared of is always the person behind the technology and the basically people are the mm-hmm. scariest thing in the world. It's not even unpredictability. It's just the badness that is sometimes dominant in people. I think that's something that's important to remember. And, and just knowing Michael for as long as I have, I've, I've learned this firsthand that these aren't mutually exclusive concepts. There's overlapping magisteria, as they say. There's, you could be scientific and superstitious. You could be an extremely, you know, logical person, rational person in every sense of the word, but still have, when it comes to certain things, be superstitious. And so that, there's kind of the spectrum here. And, uh, the Twilight Zone kind of pokes you at different, <laughs> at different places. And I definitely could see, you know, skeptics and you know you're you're skeptic in some things but you're not skeptic in everything and i i think that's definitely um true for me i mean i'm definitely going to be on that skeptical side here i mean i come from that engineering background i come from that 
sort of place where if someone says, I saw a UFO, you know, I believe they saw something, you know, <laughs> and I, I'll credit them with that. I think they're sincere, but it's kind of like, fuck oh, you, Matt. I did see something. <laughs> I, I've, since I've known you, I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> That's but, the Twilight uh, Zone teaching you that there's always more to the story. Yes. There is always, but I guess at the same time, you know, I kind of go back to like Occam's razor and I say like, what's more likely that Mike saw a UFO land and, uh, the aliens get out and do like a conga line oh, yeah. or that he's mistaken because he's um, had a few drinks or maybe some other substances <laughs> I shouldn't have had or he was just very exhausted. I just I always kind of go back to that, you know. Um, so I know there's things out there we can't explain. Um, I'm fascinated by those things, but I've still yet to have an experience. I think that's one of the big things, too. You know, maybe if I experience something. But still, I hope even if I did, I'd just be like able to tell my convince myself, no, you're just you're fooling yourself. I mean, that's that's what like magic is, for example. Uh, magicians are basically they figured out how our own minds fool us and they exploit that, you know. And I, I mean, I think that's most cases we're sincere, but we're mistaken when we think we've experienced a lot of these things that happen in the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Then again, maybe I just haven't entered the Twilight Zone yet, <laughs> but I have entered the fifth dimension, as have all of you out there. So um, we'll see if things change in the weeks to come. Looks uh, like what crazy got... shit goes down in here. <laughs> Looks but. like we've got two Scullies and two Molders. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this, for any of you who've you know dug back into the series or know it, a lot has to do with space travel. And, you know, it's something that's always, always fascinated me. Actually, um, the last couple of weeks, um, this really cool exhibit came to uh, Pittsburgh, the Heinz History Center there. It was at a, an exhibit on the Apollo 11. And that's, of course, when we went to the moon in 1969. And you got to see the capsule that the Columbia, the capsule that came back through the atmosphere and all kinds of um, exhibits there and artifacts from that. And you really get caught up in sort of the bravery and the heroism of that moment and the patriotism of all that. And it is, I mean, it truly is one of those things that's awe-inspiring and just makes you, you know, sort of look out and wonder and get a sense of the numinous. Absolutely. But, I mean, one of the things I loved about The Twilight Zone and how it handled space travel was, uh, I did love that it sort of had that same sense of adventure and wonder. It's very much like Jules Verne. I mean, we're here in 1959, and we have a character like looking out to the moon and saying, I'm coming for you, right? Um, I'm coming to see you next time, you know? And he's ten, we're 10 years away from that. Uh, we're still a couple years away from Yuri Gagarin. Uh, he goes into space in 61. So we're still a couple years away from that. So we're looking at space travel and we're still kind of looking through that Jules Verne lens of, we don't know what it's going to look like. And mm -hmm. we're still wondering about it. And what's that going to be like? You see that in the early episodes. Some of them are pretty comical when you see a rocket yeah. landing, you what know, like on the space asteroid. Or, yeah. But I, it does get, and one of the things I love about this show is it does cut beneath that sort of idea of just adventure and bravery and heroism and patriotism. It actually kind of, it'll ask some of those dark questions or some of those dark thoughts that, we don't usually verbalize. Like, for example, um, when you have the Apollo 11 landing, you have the two astronauts, Aldrin and um, Armstrong, they're down on the moon for 21 and a half hours. And was it, um, oh, this guy gets left out of history. Michael Collins. Uh, Michael Collins, thank you. No one knows Michael Collins. He's the one who's back in the module, you know, orbiting out there. And think about that. For 21 hours, he's out there alone, wondering if his friends will ever get back. Wondering if he'll ever get back. Just the sheer loneliness of that. <laughs> and Serling gets into that idea of space and how vast it is and how lonesome it would be. And then I remember reading about, you know, the idea of, well, what if those astronauts weren't able to get off the moon? Which was, it was likely it could happen. And there had to be plans. There had to be, um, you know, contingency plans for how they would let them, you know, turn off the radios and die a dignified death out there alone. So there's, you know, these just dark ideas of, of, you know, death and loneliness that, you know, Serling's not afraid to get into and no. put out there. And they're everywhere in the first few episodes. I think we all kind of ask ourselves, you know, if we were in that position, what would we do? How we would hold up? Dude, you know, again, not for a pun, but would we have the right stuff? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so something I love about that original series and never get tired of the space stories. You know, even though I was never like a Star Trek or a Star Wars buff or anything. But I, but I think that question of like, what would we do? 
is going to be something that's going to be prevalent for all of us as we go into this new series and revisit the old ones as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why The Twilight Zone has been so accessible to a multitude of generations. So for me, that's kind of the fun part of it. I think that's kind of what everyone asks, even when they watch something that's in a similar vein, like Black Mirror or, you know, Are They Afraid of the Dark? I mean, that's why I think so many of the protagonists need to be at a ground level that people can really kind of understand and connect to. And to what you're saying with Sterling asking the hard questions... I agree. I mean, I think it's the mark of a great writer to know just how hard of a future we were going into. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. And for him to be able to ask those questions and contend with them on an episode to episode basis is the mark of a great writer. And And I tap into what people are thinking, Mm -hmm. but we're not comfortable necessarily saying or discussing, Mm -hmm. you know, especially as all this is going on around us. Yeah. I mean, talking about a nuclear holocaust, Mm -hmm. right? You know, as there's missiles in Cuba pointed at us, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean. He was a, he was willing to ask those difficult questions, go to those dark places that actually, you know, you hope were very much like the realm of science fiction. You hope were just totally escapist questions, you know, but uh, in a lot of cases, very real possibilities. And I'm uh, I'm just going to put a, a, a bet out there, but um, I'm, I'm I'm wagering that uh, Jordan Peele is going to be willing to do the, ask those same questions. So <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Which right. means we'll get to every episode, see if uh, how good a person we are and uh, see if we can win. <laughs> yeah. If we can find love and win, as Eleanor would say. Yeah. I will add that while we've been sitting here, I've started thinking like maybe, Sammy, by being so cautious around the paraplegic signs that maybe you're giving them too much power and they're ultimately going to draw you in. It's true. No, and I've definitely thought of that, too, <laughs> of like you, you almost like bring things to fruition kind of. <laughs> Um, and I definitely think I do that sometimes uh, yeah. by overthinking, which is kind of my MO. Mm. Well, because ultimately, people are the scariest thing. Ugh. Oh, totally. <laughs> I, I, they ever. I mean, I, if I could, you know, what's funny is that I'm watching these, a lot of these episodes and I'm like, you know, this actually wouldn't be too bad. I wouldn't have to deal with anyone anymore. Like I, if I was in, <laughs> if I was in a situation where like, you know, on an asteroid, an asteroid and, and I, and I had the resources, I could still eat and I had enough things where I could, if I could make myself laugh, I'm good. <laughs> what if you're out of lube? Oh God. <laughs> well, that, that could be a problem. That could definitely be a problem. This is an introductory episode. We're talking about the past talked a little bit about the present, but now it's time to go into the future. Next week, we're going to be heading right into Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone with our full recap of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet and The Comedian, both premiering on April 1st on CBS All Access. Until next time, keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground, and we'll be waiting for you here in the fifth dimension. Consequence Podcast Network.